How's your week? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez, why did I why did I launch an app? I forgot how much work this is. It's been a while since I've had an app in the store. And the last app that was in the store was the magazine, which wasn't very popular and didn't require tech support. Um man, what was I thinking? What what what's gone wrong? Um, it's, it's mostly, it, the funny thing is, it's been a very successful launch overall. Like, there have been very few, um, real major problems. There have been a few minor bugs, um, many of which I've been able to fix server side, just like, you know, sub- certain podcast feeds weren't being crawled right or something. But, uh, overall, the launch has been really good. The problem is I've gotten nothing done since yesterday when I launched it. Because I've been trying to keep up with all the tweet responses, trying to read all the reviews, trying to, and recently started to try to answer all these emails. Yeah, uh, I currently have 1,099 unread emails in my inbox. Um, I've, I just finally started tackling them tonight after making a bunch of text, text spender snippets for like all the common responses. The worst part is, the worst part is that's, that's over 100 higher than the number you quoted me about uh six or seven hours ago when I checked to see if you wanted to be on the show. Yeah, and I just responded <laughs> to like 150 of them. <laughs> it's, they're coming in faster than I can respond. Right, you were at like uh, 900 around uh, noon or so. Yeah. I mean, so well, I, I guess mean, that was nine hours ago, so that's, that's To give you some idea, me. like the, the total downloads of the entire app, like the number of people who have even downloaded it, not even the people who have made an account, just people who have downloaded the app at all. Is roughly thirty-five to forty thousand. I don't. Know, I haven't gotten today's stats yet, but so I'm estimating a little bit. But roughly thirty-five or forty thousand. Wow, that's and impressive. I've gotten. I mean, that's and that's a fantastic launch. I'm very happy with that. But <laughs> out of those, at least fifteen hundred of them have emailed me. <laughs> which, <laughs> oh my god, um, that seems like a kind of high ratio to me. I don't know. That 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 kind of seems too high. Yeah, that does seem high. But <laughs> it's. I think it's also though the nature though you're the weird dual nature and you know. Uh, uh, I'm in the same boat, but, but where we're media personalities, you know, people read our sites, we're sort of have a columnist style and we do podcasts, of course, obviously I think we do. Um, I think that encourages a sort of wanting to give feedback. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And and I don't think, and again, I'll bet you'll agree with me. I will bet you will agree with me with this, that even though you're, you're complaining about being swamped, but you're, it's a privilege and a thrill that people want to do that and say nice things about your app or ask questions and stuff. I I don't begrudge it. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I really want to do as much of the support of this myself. Uh, And, and I, I probably regret saying that. (laughs) Oh God bless you. Well, but what I've done instead is I've tried to ridiculously minimize the number of support emails I actually get. So I can actually treat them like like a human being or at least hire somebody to do it and and keep an eye on it very closely. Whereas with, with Instapaper, I was never able to do that. There was too much support. And that's sort of a, a, a virtuous circle where you being motivated to minimize support issues design and development-wise because you know you're going to have to deal with them yourself – means that if you succeed, it works, and you have less time doing support and vice versa. You know, whereas if you right. had somebody doing support, you may not, maybe you wouldn't be as, as, you wouldn't care quite as much. Right. This is something that, you know, friend of the universe, Daniel Jalcut, has always said, uh, that he, I believe this is still the case, that he always answers all of his own support email, 
so that he is both, you know, on top of issues as they arise and aware of what people are asking for, and so that he is motivated to, you know, fix problems in the app that cause a lot of support issues so that people don't even have to email him. Hmm. So, you know, everyone wins there. So I'm, I'm trying it out. I'll see. I mean, I don't have any idea what the, like, stable uh, email rate will be, you know, I, five weeks from now on a Tuesday, you know, what's what's going to be the email rate that day? I don't know. Um, so I'll see if I can still handle it myself. I, I would like to do as much of it myself in the early days as possible. Though. Like this this initial batch of, oh, oh now it's 1,100. Got got one more. This, this initial batch of 1,100 plus emails, um, I would like to go through myself just so I have some idea, like, what are people asking for? Yeah. What, you know, what... What should I be doing differently? What what is confusing people about the app that I should that I should, you know, think about rearranging or relabeling or rethinking? Yeah. Uh, I know I know Cable Sasser does the same thing with major releases. Um, of, I don't know if he does it with every major release, but I know that he's done that. Like, and I I don't think he hesitates to dive into the support on a regular basis. But he, like when they launch like Coda, you know, I don't know 4.0, whatever the next version is. He'll spend like that that like thirty six hour manic period of okay, it is out, um, on the front lines of the support queue, you know, working through it because he wants that experience. He wants to see that you know initial feedback, and it's yeah, true. I mean, it's you, valuable. There's you know? there's like an endorphin high of of a big release like this that and it to me it it's you know in hindsight you're gonna look back and say this was a great week. Um, if it's you know, as long as the launch is successful and it's not something like holy crap, the you know the server actually can't you know take more than a hundred users. Right. And uh, that I lucked out big time with that because I was that's what I was most worried about. Oh. I had forgotten about the the concept of support email. I was much more worried about right. the servers holding up, and because I didn't really, I couldn't really predict um, how heavy the load would be on the server. No. So I went to Linode where all my stuff is um, a couple days ago. And I just added like eight new servers yeah. just because because you can add and destroy them whenever you want. They're built hourly. So I was just like, you know, let me just add way more capacity than I think I will need um, and, and make a way that I can easily clone them if I need even more than that. And uh, and then, you know, I can always take them all down next week. Yeah. And and you, you have the advantage where you've done large scale things before. Instapaper had a ton of users and, you know, you know, a lot like um, Overcast is largely, you know, it's. The whole thing is the whole premise is built on this the server. Um, Tumblr obviously I think has a fair number of users, uh, <laughs> a little bit, yep. Yeah. Uh, and even you know, however much smaller they were when you left Tumblr, they, Tumblr was a big ass website when you left. Yeah, I mean, when I left, if I screwed up, I would serve about twelve hundred error pages per second. Right. Well, there you go. That's that's Which is kind of pressuring. But the thing, and so Brent Simmons was in the same boat, and I will return to this because one of the reasons I, I, I'm so interested by Overcast is I do see some a fair number of similarities situation wise with Vesper, um, and design wise even. But um, one of the things was that Brent has built large scale, you know, online things. You know, there's net news uh, wire syncing some of the other stuff he did at NewsGator. Um, so I felt really good being, you know, having nothing to do with writing the code, um, betting on Brent Simmons. And it did work out. We had a great launch. The sync all went fine. And I would have been just as happy betting on, you know, Overcast and Marco Arment having a good thing because experience really matters. But on the other hand, and Brent, you know, had a couple of these things in mind, um, 
especially for online stuff, every couple of years, the state of the art changes and there's little things that are new and different, right? It didn't used to be that you could go to Linode and say, you know what, give me a couple of extra database servers. You couldn't do that. Oh, yeah. Right. And so in, in, in large part, and I think the reason like both those launches went well, those things work really well. But you just never know because there might be something. There might be something that you overlook because it's that's what bugs are. Bugs are always things that you overlook, and you can say, "Here's all. The, here's the seven things that have bit me before scaling wise, and I'm going to make sure all seven of these I've handled well." There might be an, a new one, an eighth one that you don't know about, and then all of a sudden you've got a big launch. All these websites are writing about you. You're on the front page of this website, that website, all sorts of Twitter's going nuts, people talking about it, and your server is down. And it, yeah. it would, you know, you probably would be a, a much less happy Marco. Oh, yeah. And, you know, because the difference, like, I mean, I, I did a beta test with about 40 people for about two months. And 40 people, because Apple has not, as far as I know, rolled out that new testing thing yet that they made TestFlight into. No. So you're still limited to 100 device slots. So 40 people, if you want to leave any room for anyone to get new phones in the fall or anyone to have an iPad, that's about as big of a group as you can do. Uh, and... You know, I, I, this was the biggest beta I've ever done by a long shot, the longest beta I've ever done. And the beta unco- did uncover tons of issues, and which I'm very thankful for. Um, and yet there, were st- there are still bugs that none of us found because the difference between 40 people and, you know, 30,000 people is, uh, is substantial. Yeah. And, out of the, and out of the 40, you know, we were mostly, it was mostly people I know, like you and, you know, other like tech people. So it wasn't a very diverse group. And so certain things like we just never ran into because that isn't how we use the po- podcast app, uh, you know, whereas a lot of people do run into that. Any, and, any good and, examples? You know, that's part any, of a problem of... I'd love to hear an example of that, if you can think of one that's good. Like if there's like a already like a frequently run into oh, yeah. Sharp Edge or something like that. What do you think? What do you think the average number of podcasts is that somebody subscribes to? Uh, three. Yeah, but I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, ruling out anyone who who does zero, you know, obviously. Right. Um. <laughs> so I don't I don't have that number available for Overcast yet. However, I have heard from many people. Apparently, my OPML importer is having problems for people who have OPML files that have like a hundred feeds in them. <laughs> and there's a lot of these people who keep telling me this. And I, I, I like that. I listen to my my feed list is about thirty five or forty long because a lot of those are shows that that are retired or right. on a hiatus or a lot of them are shows that I like I added one episode of but I didn't subscribe to the whole show uh, and they they're still on my list because I haven't deleted them and so the, the number of, of podcasts I listen to actively that you know at new that that, that actually produce new episodes every week is probably about ten maybe and that I consider myself a heavy podcast listener uh, and. <laughs> But compared to the general public, like, there are these edge cases out there. There are these people who listen to over 100. One guy complained that his had over 150, and I couldn't import it properly. Um, and I just never considered... And, and that, also, that also creates problems. You know, the, my, the problem with OPML is that there's no way to specify episodes. You can only say which podcast you subscribe to. It's, in other words, it. in other words, it's the the URL of the podcast feed, not the Correct. URL of the episode. Correct, and right. that's it. And so, it, it the OPML standard cannot communicate to you know between apps 
what you know whether you've heard all the episodes or not, which ones are unplayed, how far you've gotten in them. It only knows which podcasts you subscribe to. Period. That's it. Well, that's and, not. And, and to to be pedantic here, I'll fill in for mm-hmm. Syracuse. It's not really a limit of OPML in general because I believe OPML is a general purpose outliner file format. It's it's the specific flavor of OPML that is widely understood as the lingua franc franca. How do you say that? Lingua franca. I think of, so. of sharing of sharing a list of feeds that you subscribe to, and that's right. it's true for RSS readers too. It's probably right. the exact and, same format. And and there's actually a very good reason why uh, nobody's implemented episode exporting and importing. It's mostly because there is no good way to uniquely identify the episodes. Yeah, I would imagine uh, because so. GUIDs are not required in the standards. <laughs> uh, so, so there's and there's a lot of feeds that do GUIDs wrong anyway. And aren't there and, some uh, feeds that you couldn't even use the URL for the audio file? Because there's some uh, aren't there some shows where they'll give it and they'll they'll put two in and they'll say like here's here's two different formats MP3 and M4A. Oh but, yeah. yeah, there's even still some people who put in OG Vorbis and then there's there's a new format called OG Opus I think that I've ne- I didn't even hear of until yesterday. Uh, I, I don't know how popular it is, but yeah, just to give you some yeah, idea. That, of what well, that, with. I think that tells you how popular it is, but <laughs> probably, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And so like there's, and you know, now, now I'm dealing with broken feeds, you know, feeds that have right. clearly broken markup. Um, but you know, that people are angry about that I don't support. And so I have to figure out how to support them and it's a mess. But anyway, so the, one of the biggest complaints I've gotten is from people who subscribe to a lot of shows. Uh, my, my default behavior when importing OPML is I will assume that you want the one most recent episode in every one of those feeds listed. That is a bad assumption. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and so when you have 150 feeds, and, I try to immediately download 150 episodes. Right. And people are complaining that I'm filling up their phones because all of a sudden they have three gigs of podcast downloaded after their import. And, they, and I don't have like a bulk cancel operation. Uh, and that, again, this is something that that is a valid problem. I didn't think of it. It never came up in beta. I have to figure out some good way to solve that now. But that is very much a valid problem. Yeah, and I'm a, I was a bad tester for that because I don't keep like an archive of um, old shows. Like I don't want. I don't have a subscription to Hypercritical anymore just because I want to go back and listen to it. If I do, it might strike me my fancy someday, but then I, would, I wouldn't think I want to have a subscription to it. I would think I'll go in the directory, find it, find the episode I want, and play, and then right. add it there. I would never think I want to – even though I understand the mindset that someone would want to do that. Here's the 150 podcasts I've ever been interested in, and I want to move this file around from app to app. My mind that that seems crazy to me. A new I kind of like the idea of switching and trying a new podcast app every once in a while, just to start clean and say, "Here, let me find two or three shows I want to listen to. I've got a, a long drive ahead of me." Right, and I think it's easier because you know, despite those outliers, you know, like RSS has always had that problem where usually people listen or people subscribe to usually a pretty good number of RSS feeds if they use it at all. Like, I subscribe to probably 200 RSS feeds. And again, most of them don't update every day, so it's easy to follow. Um, but podcasts, you know, there's there's a, a limit on how many podcasts you can listen to on a regular basis. And so I always assume the numbers would be substantially lower for, you know, number of podcast feeds that most people would be subscribed to. I assume that would be a very low number. Um, and yeah, turns out 
not necessarily a safe assumption. Right. So what what they want is they want to be able to maybe even default to zero downloads per podcast and then go through and then change it from there. Right. And I think, honestly, I mean, a safe default might be zero. And just just make people pick one from everything, you know. Like yeah. I think my assumption that you want the latest one from everything is probably problematic enough that I should probably change it, which is good because I can change that one server side. Yeah, maybe uh, that's so a good we'll one see. that you'd want to do. If I add a, just a single new subscription in the app, maybe assume I want to get the most recent episode. But if I'm importing an OPML file, don't assume I want any of the episodes. Yeah, I mean that's that is certainly well. Actually, no. I think I think my default behavior now is. That if you tap subscribe on our new show, I download the latest episode. Yeah, if you add it from the directory, which so that that I think that is a safe assumption. But yeah, I think you're right with OPML. It, it, I think I think it isn't. So yeah, I think maybe I'll change that later tonight after I'm done with you. Yeah, <laughs> don't let me hold you. <laughs> um, that leads directly to another question I've had, and I've seen it, and I'm not even following anywhere nearly as religiously as I'm sure you are on Twitter. The day one commentary about it, but I've seen a lot of people remark about the lack of streaming. Yes, that that is a big one. And uh, I again, I never really noticed. I guess I have because I guess there've been times like I've been trying to um to run on a more regular basis and I that's you know one of the times where I do listen to podcasts and it'll be like, "Hey, I know that there's got to be a new ATP out. Uh let me go look." And uh, there it is, and I do. I have to wait until I get the whole thing before I go out. But I don't have to wait that long that it would ever even have occurred to me to, you know, write in as a suggestion that I would like to just leave the house and have it stream over LTE or something like that. Because it doesn't right. take that long for you know a, a hundred and some megabyte file. But it seems right. like lots of people want that. What they want is they want it to start downloading and playing at the same time. Oh yeah, and and streaming, it's you know, it isn't there because it's it's hard to do, and I didn't have time to do it, and it's going to take months to do it right. Uh, that's why it's not there. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people assume that I just forgot to add it. It's just some oversight, right? Nope. Just start, just start playing, <laughs> right? Um, I, I, that's you know, what I, I check that checkbox. <laughs> that's what I figured the answer was. That the answer is that it's not. It's like a lot of these things. It's not easy. It's really hard, and. And it's harder for me because of my audio engine. Like it's it's easier for the other players that that don't use the low level stuff that I do to do my audio effects. Um, it's easier for them, but it's a lot easier for them. I, the way I'm going to have to do it is going to be more manual. Like I'm going to have to build more of those parts from scratch. But I, the the main argument for it, uh, and first of all, I think the I think the need for it is exaggerated on day one because so many people want to just jump in and try and try playing it, and they have to wait for their files to download. Whereas if you just use the app regularly, most new episodes you'll get will be pushed to you in the background, and you won't even notice them downloading. And by the time you, know, you launch the app next, they're just there. Um, so you know, background download, I think, removes much of the need. But there are still situations where you need, uh, or where streaming is very nice to have. Um, the big two are immediate feedback. Like if you just wanted to add an episode and listen to it right now, like right as you add it, then you want to hear it. You can start playing it immediately. And then the second big one is if you like a lot of the a lot of the clients offer a uh, streaming only mode where nothing is ever downloaded. You only ever stream things. And that way you don't use any disk space. See, no, that would never even occur to me. And it's it's a really good idea. And like, it, you know, if you think about, you know, for me, I would never use it because, I, you know, I have I live in an area that has spotty reception and I often, you know, travel and go upstate or on a plane or something. And so. 
I, I, I want everything to be just downloaded and there and ready. Um, but a lot of people don't work that way. A lot of people want everything to always only be streamed and leave all the space free on their phone. And we'll see what happens. Like with iOS 8, with the new photo management thing, right. uh, you know, maybe maybe there won't be as much of a space crunch on iOS devices as there used to be. Who knows? Um, but either way, I, I am going to add streaming. It's just a matter of of doing it, which is probably going to take a few months. Yeah, it seems like there's that, that's actually sort of under the radar, like one of the big uh, priorities of iOS 8 is space management because they're doing – it's a similar thing they're doing with um, messages – where exactly. the, it's defaulting to not keeping the images and other attachments that you've been sent. And I think part of that is a, a sort of trend towards privacy in general and, you know, things like Snapchat and stuff like that where it works like that and people seem to like it and maybe it just never occurred to them before. But I think another big part of it is that, you know, even for me, it was not like a super heavy texture, but... Um, Whiskus and I communicate a lot about Vesper. I've got tons of screenshots in my iMessages with him. Um, if I look in the usage, I do have a couple of gigabytes. I don't know, four, four, four or five gigabytes in messages, and there's no way to get them to get them out. I mean, I think you could go through one by one, but it, you know that that's that way lies madness. Right, or you can delete the entire conversation with Dave Whiskus and lose that entire history. Which yeah, which I don't want to do. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it's also the way the weird way iMessage works where I've actually got like seven conversations with Whiskus. I don't know if they're based on different, <laughs> right. you know, like his phone number to my Apple ID, my Apple ID to his Apple ID. I don't, I don't know quite know how that counts, but everyone's, you know, that would be less, I would probably be easier to delete seven conversations with him, but, um, but you know, who knows how much of those gigabytes is all sorts of other people too. And I'd have to keep deleting all those things. I don't know. One thing I don't know, and I would love to know the answer to maybe somebody who's upgraded their regular phone to iOS eight betas would know whether that applies to your old messages. Like if you upgrade your phone to iOS eight, will that, that new world only apply to new messages as they come in or is iOS eight going to do something smart about your archive of, of, of old images? That's a tough one because you certainly you can see the the other problem is like you know if if they just default to all right we're just gonna stop keeping all old stuff by default then as soon as you upgrade to iOS eight all your old messages get deleted and that's <laughs> that's kind of bad <laughs> so I can see the problem there right it's one thing if uh, new messages start coming in with that little keep button and you you know even if you don't quite notice it right away well it was there and you had the opportunity to press keep. It's another thing to say, yeah, all those messages you got over the last uh, three years that you never even had to worry about whether they were going to be kept or not, you you knew they were going to be kept. Yeah, we, we did you a favor and deleted them. Right. I mean, I think what would probably make more sense would be to treat those attachments just like entries in your photos library where mm. they are all kept on iCloud. And then they can just be pulled down on demand. If you if you actually scroll up and go like you know three years back in history, they can be pulled off the off the network. Yeah, that would make um, that makes a lot of sense. And just have it use your storage. But unfortunately, with some people, that might use a ton of storage. Who right. Knows? Yeah, I was just about to say it. The problem is that it for a lot of people, a couple of gigs of iMessage images is probably pretty close to the number of gigs they have in in their iCloud storage. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also a lot of duplication. I think like like if you send a picture to somebody. Do you now have two copies of that in your storage? Like like the one in your camera roll and the one you sent them? I don't know. Like I don't know how that works. Yeah. I do think that 
Well, that's a good question. I think you might, because um, it might also. I don't even know. I actually never even checked whether they like shrink them at all or anything. I don't think they do. But I don't know. That's a good question. And when you do get a copy, like when you you definitely get a dupe when you take the photo with your phone and then you switch to your iPad or your Mac or something and the conversation is over there too, that's obviously a, a copy of the image. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Obviously something you have to concern yourself about though. That's one area where, you know, Overcast I think is in a unique situation where um, – you know, you some some users might reasonably want Overcast to literally take up a majority of the storage on their device. You know, somebody with a sixty-four gigabyte iPhone might might actually want a podcast app that that stores about forty gigabytes of podcasts. Right. You know, especially if you're going on a trip or something, and and you're going to be without coverage, or you're going international, you don't want to use data roaming, or or you're just going out for a while, and you're in a country where cell coverage is or cell data is very expensive. You know, either way, uh, you know, there are so many reasons why you want it downloaded and why you want it to be taking up space in your phone rather than requiring it to be streamed constantly. But the other side of that is probably just as frequent, which is you have, you know, a 16 gig device and it's full and you want to download some podcasts and you don't have enough space. Yep. That sucks. And, and so, like, I can see both sides of the argument, but there's also a problem in having the app offer a, a very healthy blend of those two things because then everything becomes way more complicated both the both the code and the interface because then you have to you have to like manage these states and offer ways for people to like transform a stream into a download or you know delete something but leave it streamable and and all these things that really complicate the interface and and the data model and then and even the mental model of the user as to, to know like do I have this thing or not um, that's I, I'm trying to keep it very simple so that people can can know what what's happening they can know what they have just by looking at it they can see it. they can tell okay i have this file and they can be kind of assured of that and they can depend on that you know but it's it's hard this and this is why podcast apps are so challenging to make i think because it's one of those categories like to-do lists where like it seems simple at first and then you start getting requests from people and you start realizing wait a minute there is not only is there no way to satisfy all of them, you know, like like any change you make is going to satisfy this group but anger this other group, um, but also that the problem space is so complicated of what somebody might want and exactly how they might want it that there is infinite potential for improvement for every person. No one is ever a hundred percent satisfied with their podcast app. Everyone's always like sixty percent satisfied, and I you know so I made one that satisfies my 60 percent <laughs> i'm very happy with it um but it's it's never going to appeal to everyone and it's not even close i think that's another it's one of the broad areas where i see it as similar to vesper in that there's a ton of notes apps including right. one that ships with the system from apple um that's not horrible you know, and, and it is there. It's, you know, it's, it's it, at least, you know, one of the things I like about it, though, is at least you see where Apple's coming from with it. So you don't have to worry, like, it's more worrisome if Apple doesn't have an app in your category, right? Like, right. It then, was, then you're always wondering, like, either why isn't there an app in my category? Does my category suck that badly? Or it, what will happen if they make one? Right. Like, then they'll crush us all, you know? And even if it ends up not being crushing, it's it's stressful. Like, you must have gone through that with the reading list. Because you, you oh, start yeah. hearing about it before it comes out. 
Then they announce it, and then you have to worry, well, how popular is it going to be? It's coming out in three months when the beta is over. Uh, and it's stressful. I mean, I you know, it's better to know that, wow, here's Apple's podcast app, and here's all the reasons I don't like it, and I know that there's a lot of other people who don't like it. And they're probably right. not going to wipe it out and start over, I don't think. Um, well, and, and you know, there, there are things about Apple's podcast app that are the way they are because that's how Apple does things or because there's a strategy tax in place. Like there's, there's a certain amount of, of kludginess in the app that is entirely because it has to use the iTunes podcast directory right. and it has to be tied so, so firmly to that. And so, like, they can't do anything that, that, like, breaks that. It has to cater to a casual, I don't even, I don't even know what a podcast is yet, person in certain Correct. ways. And it also, it has, to, it has to cater to every territory in the world, every language in the world, every genre of podcasts in the world. And, it, and like, you know, think about, like, whenever the podcast app team wants to get something changed or improved about the API to the store... How likely is that to really happen? You know, like inside Apple, you know, the, the, the iTunes store team has enough to do. Do you think if the podcast team, if the podcast app on iOS team makes a request, how, how high a priority is that really to the, to the iTunes store team that's, that has all this other stuff to do with, you know, the more high profile things like the app store and the music store, yeah. you know? And so I, I, the, the Apple podcast app is always going to be limited by that. Plus it's limited by Apple's like 80% strategy, yeah. you know, where they, they're, they're never going to do features that are as nerdy as like my playlists. Like the way I do playlists is so crazy with all like these filters and everything. And it's, it's a, it's a playlist system for nerds and Apple's never going to do one like that because that's not the way they do things. Yeah. I don't think so either. And in fact, it might even, um, might even be problematic for them in the way that their podcast app for iOS, uh, is has like this weird relationship with iTunes on Mac and Windows, which is where you you know Apple's solution for how you listen to podcasts on your Mac or PC, where playlist has a very different word. I mean, maybe they could just add. I guess they could maybe piggyback on playlists that include audio file, you know, regular audio files from your library or whatever. But that just turns it into more of a mess in my mind. Right, and well, that's why, like, when the Apple the Apple Podcast app added something, I believe they call it channels, which is basically a smart playlist. It's, you can just select like select which feeds go into this, and that's your playlist. Um, and they added that to the podcast app. And I think the reason they had to call it channels was yeah, because that's probably, playlists means something else in the in iTunes land. You know? I I never thought about that. I was always confused as hell by their channels. I thought their channels were a little bit more like categories in the store and and i think that's why i found it so confusing is that they're not really categories in the store they are probably more like it would have made more sense to me if they called them channels and then in parentheses right. playlists right yeah smart playlists that's what yeah. they are they're smart playlists for podcasts yeah. it's has there ever been anything in the history of technology after the television where the word channels was used for something that ended up being a success a success oh that's an excellent question because it's been used in a bunch of like half-assed, terrible things, like the Windows ninety-eight channels bar on Active Desktop. Yeah. If anybody who's listening to the show actually remembers that. Uh, you don't, because you were a Mac person. You probably right. never saw it. No, you're very it. lucky. <laughs> imagine, imagine Microsoft at its worst at a time when when PC hardware was at its worst, uh, where the, with the software was trying to do way too much. Web technologies were brand new. 
And this is when Microsoft tried to integrate IE into the desktop so that the desktop was basically a giant web view on hardware that was like a Pentium 90 with 16 megs of RAM. Like, <laughs> it was a, it was a, an awful time to be a PC user. And, and there are many awful times to be a PC user, but I think like 1997 was a particularly awful one. It's pretty bad for being a Mac user, too. Yeah, like fair point. Just a bad year for computers, or as, as Steve Jobs called it in the interview in the, the interview with Cringley, a dark ages of computing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was, yeah, he was not that far off about that. Yeah, it was bad for everybody. You know, Next had like three developers, uh, like really cool system and like six apps, uh, and they were super expensive. You know, the the, the machines that could run it. Uh, maybe by '97, I guess they ran on PCs. It was net next step or open step. Um, but like no market whatsoever. Uh, Macs were part of a company that was dying and had no, no, no real operating system, no modern operating system. And then Microsoft, you know, Microsoft was so powerful. <laughs> and they just, yeah, and they shipped Windows 98. They just was, gave in to oh, all of their worst impulses. So bad. It was so, so bad. And, and and the internet was you know the internet was so new in '97 that everyone was like the most used application on your computer started to become the web browser. But web browsers were so bad, and the hardware was so primitive, and they, there was no RAM. So just 1997 just sounds like hard drives grinding as everything just swaps <laughs> constantly. That's that's the entire year. Everything was just swapping for a year and waiting for dial-up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that too. Yep. <laughs> Oh my God! Things that you just could not even imagine explaining to your kids today would be the dial-up. Dial-up is just impossible. You can explain slow internet, but dial-up was so much worse <laughs> than being slow. Because I remember being—I uh, can't remember when I eventually. I think we eventually, Amy and I, eventually broke down and bought a second phone line, got a second number just for internet. Um, but I remember it just, you know, and I understand this stuff. And I was able to set up a thing. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw a blank on the software, but it was by a great indie Mac developer named Peter Sitchell. I'm gonna have to take a moment here and, and Google this and look him up. But he had this great Mac utility that would let you share a dial-up with multiple Macs on your local network. So Amy and I could both get on the internet at the same time. And she could just, she didn't have the modem hooked up. The modem was hooked up to my machine. But she could just get on the internet, go check email, and then, you know, wait the 90 seconds for the whole thing. But then she'd have internet, you know, with just one modem shared between us. And we could both be on at the same time. Um, Yeah, that was unheard of back then. Oh, it was a game changer. It was awesome. Um, This is where I need I need the uh, forum that you guys have the live audience because somebody would yeah the chat room (laughs) I don't know this is pretty obscure even our chat I'm not sure yeah but I just feel like Peter Sitchell S I C H E L sustainable softworks let me see what uh, well I don't remember the name of it but I'll give you I'll give a shout out to it he's still got his URL sustworks s u s t works dot com um. I used to have to. Um, I we only had one phone line in my house, and I was I was like in seventh grade in nineteen ninety seven. So uh, it was a little bit different. I couldn't just buy another phone line. <laughs> we only had one phone line, and my mom had a lot of friends who would call her all the time, and uh, and so I was not allowed to disable call waiting uh, on the modem. <laughs> oh my god! I had to, and it was an external modem. So anybody calls your house? <laughs> yeah, I had I had to listen. I had to leave the you could you could configure the modem in its string to leave the speaker on all the time instead of turning off after it connects. So 
the whole time I was just sitting there listening to static, like, <laughs> and then you could hear beep if a call waiting came in. And I had to listen for that. And if I heard a beep, I had to flick the modem off so it would hang up immediately and let the phone ring and pick it up and, you know, then just not be on the internet for the next 20 minutes during this phone call. <laughs> I've got it here. It's IP net router. It's a complete IP router and firewall solution, including a built-in DHCP server, NAT with inbound port mapping and IP filtering to set up your own firewall. I think it costs like 40 bucks. May, uh, may, what was it here? Here's a comment from somebody. So it was 89 bucks. <laughs> it was a steal. It was 89 bucks, and you you had superpowers. Um, but that, I, That's a pretty advanced functionality and like a pretty advanced network stack for that time well that was it was built on uh i'm going way out in the weeds here but uh mac os 9 for as crazy convoluted you know a terrible bag of wires it was in some areas under the hood had some amazing stuff um i think it was called open transport was the networking stack so he didn't necessarily write the whole networking stack all the way to the bottom it was built on open transport but his stuff was almost like like the flagship of why open transport was great and why a lot of mac developers were um uh, beside themselves when mac os 10 went with the you know the unix uh networking i forget that there was a whole controversy in that you know there were all these mini there are thousands of these little mini converse controversies between classic the which parts of the classic mac os would stay and which parts of next step would stay and that was one of them um, I, I kind of feel very lucky that i didn't even come to the mac until 104 in 2004 I, and i bought an aluminum power book so like i didn't come to the mac until it was awesome yeah that's actually a good point because there you know, was like, it's, it's like somebody coming to the iphone with the 5s yeah. you know it's like you're, you've missed this whole history of like a little bit of rough patches here and there although the iphone was way easier i think yeah. than being a mac owner in the 90s yeah there were a couple of years in there where it was and it really it was the early years of daring fireball exactly around 2002 2003 um, that's when I started, but maybe even count 2001, where um, Mac OS 9 was half awesome and half terrible, and Mac OS 10 was half terrible and half awesome. And, you know, maybe those percentages were 60, 40, 40, 60, and then they got 50, 50, and they, you know, they shifted over time. But it took years for Mac OS 10 to really be overwhelmingly, yeah, you know what, I, I just want to use it all, all the time, clearly. And so it was, you know, switching. I remember for a while I had two machines at my desk. I had a, I had a, uh, forget what it was running Mac OS 10. I think it was a PowerBook running Mac OS 10 and a, a old, really old Power Mac running Mac OS 9. And the older machine running Mac OS 9, of course, felt way faster. Oh yeah, because it was doing way less. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and Microsoft, to their credit, like the '90s, they they had a similar scale of transit well not similar they, they had a much easier transition but it was it was still a pretty substantial transition between the windows 95 98 me kernel and the nt kernel that that powered 2000 and then xp and everything after right. xp um and that like i was i was using it heavily during that transition and i was like i would be using the the beta of windows 2000 and it was way more stable than windows 98 yeah, like, I remember even that. At, even the, like the very first beta of it in like February 1999 was way way more stable than Windows 98. And but you know it was easier back then to go through that transition because Microsoft stuff was always mediocre. Like it, it was to give the you know to their credit they were consistent. 
You know, whereas Apple, it sounded, you know, sounds like they would have some some amazing times, and then some terrible times. Whereas right. Microsoft was always impressively mediocre. It was like you could count on the mediocrity. It was the you know it was the Starbucks and McDonald's of of computer uh, operating systems, and I, I would argue probably still is. Yeah. And that's actually kind of valuable for a lot of people to know what you're going to get. You know, it's it's dependable. Yeah. And and the transition, you know, for, from '98 to uh, 2000 was not that bad unless you had to scan or print anything and there were no drivers but besides that if you if you as long as you didn't have to scan or print uh it was actually a really easy transition yeah i think that was the basic idea of why they didn't go to nt even earlier because i even i actually had to use windows in some ways like in college when i had jobs and stuff where you, you know that's what people used um and i remember the first time i saw windows nt i don't even know what the version number was but it was before 2000 but it was probably like nt 4 or, or three, I think, because they numbered it. Yeah, because yeah. they numbered it to match Windows three. Yeah, NT four, I believe, or was NT four two thousand, or was that NT five? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and I remember asking like the the guys who knew a lot more, you know, were into the PC side. I was like, why isn't everybody using this? This is actually like, you know, it was NT five. Uh, it's still, uh, yeah, that was it. That was it. NT five was, was two thousand. Yeah. Uh, NT four was the one that that looked like windows 95 yeah it was nt4 that i that i had seen and used and had some experience with and i was like this is you know i still think it's kind of gross design wise but technically this is so far superior why isn't everybody using this and then they were like duh there's no drivers for it and i was exactly. like well i was like well don't you see there's an easy way to solve this shouldn't everybody just switch to this and then everybody will write drivers for it 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 I mean, transitions are hard. I know it's not, but it just seemed crazy to me that they were in active development for so many years. Well, that, and the, and the PC world is. I mean, I don't. know. It's probably better now. I'm not. I'm actually not sure. I've I've been out of it too long. But you actually couldn't count on new drivers for almost anything. Like if you upgraded your version of Windows, you would probably almost certainly you'd have to get a new scanner at least. Like some of your hardware would just stop working reliably or at all because the because they wouldn't put out a new driver or they would put out a new beta driver and then go out of business. Or something, and it would, and like scanners were scanners and printers were some of the worst. Um, and then like it, like the more specialized your hardware peripherals were, the worse they would be. So like like I had like, I had a couple of game pads because I, I wanted to like play emulators, and so I bought these game pads, and they were always the absolute worst. And so you could almost be sure that any any hardware or anytime you upgraded your Windows OS, uh, you'd have to also spend maybe 200 bucks upgrading some of your hardware because just just because of driver issues you'd have to replace perfectly working hardware just because there wouldn't be drivers anymore or they wouldn't be workable drivers anymore crazy dark yeah. days and and that's one of the reasons why microsoft had to jump through hoops for backwards compatibility and all that crap because that was the world they were operating in that was like the hardware environment they were operating in where they like they couldn't just dictate to people you know what everyone's now using this so you have to catch up you know the way apple does that today Microsoft could not do that in in the '90s, and I I don't even know if they can do it today. They probably still can't do it. Mm. All right, hey, let me jump in here in the early minutes of the show with our first <laughs> sponsor break and uh, remind everybody about our good friends at uh, Connected Data, makers of File Transporter. Right, I, I use this analogy every time I talk about these guys. It's like your own private Dropbox. You buy a device, or you buy multiple devices. They come to your house, they have hard drives in them, or you hook hard drives up to them. You put them on your local network. They're right there in your house, in your office, wherever you want them to be, but they're in your control. And then you install the software on your Mac, and you get a little folder on your Mac, like Dropbox, and it syncs. And where are those files in the folder? 
they are stored on your transporter device. And you can share it between multiple people. You can share it between multiple devices, multiple places. You can hook more than one of them up. Um, but the basic idea is you have sync between computers through the cloud, but not stored on servers in the cloud. They're stored on devices that you own and control. Maybe that's just for your own peace of mind because you're interested in the privacy implications of that. Maybe it's because you have legal reasons that you actually can't store things on devices that you don't control uh, for HIPAA or things like that. They have an iOS app. And this is new, fairly new. Um, iOS app for the iPhone and iPad has been updated. That has a pretty cool feature where it does things like um, upload all your photos and videos from your camera roll right to a special folder on transporter for safekeeping. So you want to, again, if that's one of your things you really want to do is have a cloud-based, um, effectively cloud-based backup automatically of your photos so that if something happens to your phone, you know you've got them automatically somewhere else. Um, but you don't want that somewhere else to be a server in California or who knows where controlled by some big corporation that might have the NSA tapping it or whatever. Transporter can do that for you. Really cool. Great stuff. If any of that appeals to you, go check them out. Where you go is you go to www.filetransporterstore.com. Filetransporterstore.com. And they have two deals for, for listeners. You want to save 10%, you can save up to 35 bucks on any of the regular transporter models by using the code TTS10, the talk show 10, TTS10. They have 500 gigabyte, one terabyte, two terabyte capacities. Save 10%, big bucks. Or if you want to buy the little thing, the little thing, it's like the puck is the transporter sync. Um, same functionality, but what you do with this one, instead of having a hard drive built into it, you just hook any uh, USB drive up to it. So if you already have a big USB drive or a couple of them sitting around, you can uh, get a cheaper device, smaller device, and just hook your own drive up to it. You can save 20 bucks on one of those by using the code TTS20. So TTS20, if you want to get the little sync, TTS10, if you want to get the, uh, the big regular transporter. And anybody who uses either of those codes gets free shipping. So go check them out at filetransporterstore.com. So what were we talking about? We were talking about Overcast before. Before the detour into old Windows and Mac yeah, horrible days. Yeah. The horrible days of the late 90s of using computers. God, I don't know how that happened. That was terrible. Uh, all right, That was like the entire computer industry was in middle school. <laughs> yeah, it was really like middle was. school always sucks for everybody, and it sucks for the computer industry, and that was it. That's a pretty good analogy. It really was. And you, you're, the worst of your personality comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Apple, Apple went pie in the sky, uh, you know, off smoking pot thinking they were going to write a universal <laughs> i just re linked that up today the talligent thing with ibm like i a apple had uh, had was writing multiple operating systems that never actually came to exist you know and there was copeland uh and they did the whole newton thing which wasn't a failure it wasn't a bust but obviously you know wasn't a hit and therefore didn't uh you know they took their eyes off the ball and left the thing that was actually keeping the company around uh they let it languish and then Microsoft, man, it just, they really got, they got bad. But anyway, that's enough of that. I do think it's amusing that, that like the biggest Apple news this week is probably the IBM thing. And you choose to have me on. <laughs> I am probably the least qualified person in the world 
to comment on that in any fashion whatsoever. Well, maybe next to me. Let's get, well, let's save it. Let's go. Let's do news at the end of the week. Let's keep going on overcast. <laughs> I had a couple more programming questions. So um, yeah. Brent wanted me to ask this when I told him you were going to be on the show. He wanted to know how hard the audio programming was because he said it sounds like it would be hard. It sounds like it would be hard for him. And knowing just some of the trickery that you're implementing, that it's even harder. So that's that's a question. How hard was audio programming? And you had no background in audio programming before you got into this, correct? Well, it's not entirely true. Um, I, I did a project in college where I was I was trying to make uh, a better lossless compression algorithm, like FLAC and you know those those kind of lossless ones. Um, my project in college failed because the compression that I wrote took like ten hours to compress one file, and the resulting file was actually larger than the input file. <laughs> So it, it was not a success. Uh, my idea for for how I could lossily compress them uh, was not a good idea. Turns out, <laughs> I remember but. when I was in college and I was taking computer science courses. This is mid nineties. Um, I was you know ninety one to ninety six. Everybody was writing ray tracers. Ray tracers were like I, maybe they're still a common thing, but. Man, and I, I was nowhere near good enough to even try. But I remember that there, there were some some kids I knew who wrote one, and they they were getting like like one frame a day. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievably slow, and it just had no idea how to improve it, and it was just like despondent. It was like yeah. we we it's so slow that we can't even figure out why it's slow. Well, when I was writing this thing in two thousand three. Uh, about the same number of people cared then as now about lossless audio encoding, which was about five. And uh, I don't even use, like, I'm an audiophile. I love high-quality audio. I have all sorts of ridiculous equipment to listen to high-quality audio. But I don't even use lossless audio files. Like, even, even that doesn't even make sense for me to have those giant files sitting there when, like, a 256k mp3 well encoded sounds just as good to me i can't tell the difference yeah. well, so it was it was a ridiculous background anyway um compression in general compression in general though is hard whether it's lossy right. or lossless because you're still focused on quality i mean you know even if you're writing lossy compression you know jpeg or something like that you still you don't it's not it's not like you can disregard quality Right, and and it's just mathematically, it's just it's really mind bending. I mean, to me at least. Oh yeah, I mean, like the once you get past very elementary forms of compression, the ma- it's all math, and it's all like very complicated, difficult to understand math that is far beyond my comprehension most of the time. Or like I might understand the general concept, but I certainly couldn't implement it or do it myself. Right, there's like a uh, one a one level deep of compression that anybody can understand, and it's like, well, if there's, right. it's like what zip does. Yeah, if there's <laughs> if there's sixteen ones in a row, you could just write it down as six. You know, say that there's sixteen ones, and that takes fewer space than the sixteen actual ones. Oh yeah, well, guess what? That doesn't get you very far. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's called RLE, and that was right. in Windows three point one. You know. 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. If there's yeah. these very obvious repeated patterns, then That's how GIF works, actually. <laughs> yeah, but that's, GIF has, <laughs> that's why GIF has such wonderful compression that right. tw- Twitter re-implemented as movie files. <laughs> right. Before letting exactly. you see the cat pictures. <laughs> I saw yeah. people... Because that's... The, I don't know if anybody doesn't know that, that Twitter added, quote-unquote, added support for animated GIFs. 
a couple of weeks ago. And then somebody figured out that they're not actually animated GIFs. They're sending out um, H.264 video. And then I saw people who were upset about this. And it's like, well, there's a reason they did it. The, 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 the H.264 video files are like 10 times smaller than the GIFs. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like I, I wrote the GIF processor in Tumblr. It, it's dealing with GIFs is a ridiculous pain in the ass. Yeah. It, they, it's a terrible format it, for so many reasons. And, you know, not least of which is that it isn't very efficient at compression. Um, but it, for so many other reasons, like it has the fixed uh, 256 color palette. Right. Which is really limiting. Oh, it's just <laughs> soul crushing. It's yeah, so limiting. Like that's and and those colors. I don't think those colors can change between frames of an of an animation. If I'm not did, sure about that. I don't oh, think I'm almost certain that I don't think so. I don't think between frames. Yeah, I, so, I I would be very surprised if that were true. Yeah, I remember can't change the palette. anyway. Yeah, yeah it, it's that, a terrible format. It's yeah. terrible. Well, you know, right back to the '90s, you know, but there was that whole debate when when what was it? Unisys started trying to enforce the patent on GIF. Um, it was like they had it patented and didn't do anything with it. And while they didn't do anything with it, you know, the world, the World Wide Web grew up with tons and tons of GIF files. And then all of a sudden somebody at Unisys was like, well, we have a patent on that. Yeah, it was a submarine right? patent. Um, it's like the, the canonical example of, of like a submarine patent, I think. Yeah, uh, patent you know, troll. Yeah. yeah, right. Why you should never trust a company that says, hey, just use our stuff. We're never going to enforce it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Twitter. but I remember that the, the subcurrent of the whole argument about what we should replace it with and what are we going to do and blah 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 was we're doing all this to replace an awful, truly awful file format. And you can find people who complain about JPEG and that other there were other formats at the time for f- photographs, you know, with you know the role that JPEG plays. That that there were better alternatives and stuff like that. They could have been done better in certain ways. But nobody really says JPEG is terrible. I mean, JPEG is JPEG. Right. It's, you know, pretty good. It served its yeah, role. Yeah, I mean, JPEG, like, it, and similar, MP3. Uh, MP3 is a very old format. Uh, it, what yeah. most people don't realize, is it stands for MPEG-1 Layer 3. Right. Like, MPEG-1 files are, I believe, from the late 80s. I mean, it was a while, it was a while before they were commonplace, but late 80s or early 90s, I believe, is when MPEG-1 became uh, a, a standard and became playable. Um and like that is when the MP3 format, like it's from that era. Yeah. JPEG is not from that much later than that. It's, I think it's also from the very early nineties. Yeah. And uh, and it was a while before it was you know fast enough that computers could display them very quickly. Um, but now, like, and there are better formats. Like there there was a format called JPEG two thousand. Yeah. That no one ever uses, and I, I believe there were some patent issues with it, which is one of the reasons yeah. why. But uh, you know, JPEG is good enough. Yeah. GIF is a horrible, just a horrible format. Yeah, but oh, yeah. yeah, it was. There were billions. I forget there were the estimates for how many GIF files there were on like the early internet. But it was it quickly went from like hundreds to billions. Well, and they're back now. I, I feel like this is like our bell bottoms moment. Yeah, where like it like this 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 thing that was like a weird fad fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, like uh, mostly fifteen years ago. That thing that this thing was a weird fad back then. Now it's back, and all of us who were around back then are like, why is this back? This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fashion has come back around. These are definitely these are definitely our bell bottoms. Yeah, but it's used in a way that that is there's a little bit of retro to it, but then in, in most ways there's not because the gifts that people post now, these huge animated ones with lots of frames from video and TV and stuff like that, are so humongous that that in computers in the mid '90s and internet connections in the mid '90s couldn't have even handled one of them. Oh yeah, they're like three megs. 
Right. I mean, you like, you got to figure, like, imagine the concept of a three meg GIF in 1997. Right. We used to try to make, I forget the target for our web pages, but, it, you, know, it was, you know, a lot of times, you, if part of your project specs for building websites were what was the target size for the web page, and it was always measured in kilobytes, you know. It was, right, like how many seconds would it take to load over a 56K modem? Right. It was, you know, somewhere between, for most projects that I worked on, it was usually like 10, 20 kilobytes for the whole page, all assets. <laughs> right, because well, that would take a few seconds to load. <laughs> it would take forever to load. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so to but, answer your actual question <laughs> but if a three megabyte gif file in the middle of the page would, would be terrible right i mean if it could even load without something running out of memory and crashing while decoding it right. which is unlikely but if it could even load it would have taken 45 minutes to load right i also think if i'm remembering correctly i then this i hear i could be i could be way off my rocker but i seem to recall that like early hosting accounts like if you were hosting a website somewhere like storage and bandwidth were measured in megabytes <laughs> like, like i don't know how many <laughs> megabytes but like you know you you just you couldn't serve up co- a couple hundred copies of a three megabyte file you just couldn't oh, definitely do it. not oh god and now people just crap them out every well, day because now you can host them for free and a million different services that all want your privacy yeah. all right back to audio programming so you so, did have anyway. some experience in college <laughs> Yeah, um, and I, I've I've like toyed with it here and there, <laughs> which was a complete time. failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my college experience was awful, but uh, um, but you know I got the basic concept of you know the samples and the frames and the formats and everything. So you know I and I've I've always been an audio nerd, uh, so I was I've always been familiar with you know, editing audio in in basic forms, um, playing with it. You know I, I I've I've music and and talk radio have always been very important to me. And so I've always kind of been in this. Uh, anyway, so the audio programming in Overcast was by far my favorite part. And it was ridiculously hard. But it was the, it was the kind of good hard for a programmer, which is like, it, it's very intellectually stimulating. And so it was, it's exactly what I love to do, which is working at very low level C code, doing stuff that you don't think will be possible to do quickly, and you know like it's questionable whether it will run on an iphone at reasonable speed and at reasonable battery drain um you know doing very low level stuff like that using things that you know try to make even more efficient try to take an even better trick to get this way you know throw in some of the vector algorithms and stuff like that um that it was it was a very very fun hard if that makes sense and it, it didn't take that much time you know relative to the entire rest of the app the audio engine it's it's actually easier in in many ways because it is self-contained and and what it's doing it's a relatively simple task it's easy to test it's easy to benchmark it's easy to find bugs uh, and fix them whereas if you compare if you compare that to like UI programming or sync logic to the server like those things are much higher level code there is much more code to do that sort of stuff uh, you, know, rel- you know in total for the whole app. And it's much harder to test. There's all these, all these weird edge cases. You know, the audio code really was, it, it isn't that way. It, it, you have a stream of numbers coming in, and you've got to put out a stream of numbers. And there's some buffering issues you've got to take care of and some, some performance issues you've got to take care of and, and, you know, some edge cases here or there. But it's nowhere near the level of, of like, possibility complexity that programming an interface is. Hmm. 
I think it helps that you're an audiophile. I, I, in fact, I don't know that it would have worked that way otherwise. Because I'm not. I'm a complete anti-audiophile. I just want to – yeah, I don't know. I'm, well, I shouldn't say anti because I do care about quality, but my threshold for what sounds good seems a lot lower than than people who you know like you who are really into headphones and stuff like that. Like, like my you know line up twenty pairs of headphones, and I'm going to say there's a decent chance I might find that they all sound pretty good. If you know they're all cost I don't know sixty, seventy, eighty bucks or above, um, and I would have a harder time talking about the differences if i did hear a difference between the two i'd have a harder time describing it right right and i think that helps because i would think most people and i wondered you know maybe you know this maybe you can even tell like if i were going to write a podcast app or i were going to be part of a team that was writing one uh, my idea would be well i would just let the system i'd let ios handle all the audio playback we get that there's a part we get for free we give the system um an audio format that core audio knows how to play and then it'll play it and we don't have to worry about that and then start from there. Uh, and I think that, you know, clearly that would rule out a whole bunch of the features that are in overcast. Yeah. I mean, the biggest one, like you can do voice boost using the simpler APIs. It is not, you can't do it very well, but you can do it. Uh, there's just a few little downsides, but most people wouldn't notice it'd, it'd be fine. Um, you definitely cannot do smart speed uh, in any reasonable, approachable way. And so I had to do this if I wanted smart speed. And it was an important enough feature for me that I, that I said it's, it was worth it. You know? and, and, and the reality is, as I said, like the audio engine was very, very hard for about you know, a few weeks or a month maybe, and then it was done. And then the rest of the app was, was the rest of the development time. Uh, I haven't touched the audio processing code in months because it's just, it's fine. Like, I, I made it over the course, you know, I'd, I'd like, I'd go in every once in a while and I'd make a little tweak to, like, how something was dealt with or, you know, the levels or the EQ, stuff like that. But uh, for the most part, it has barely changed in almost two years since I wrote it. Um, so those are the two, like, magic, here, just make this better features in, um, in Overcast. Smart Speed and voice boost. And I, I think of them as they're the audio equivalent of like that magic wand thing in the photos app. <laughs> exactly. Right. And you say, just make it better. And a, a lot of times for me, that button makes the photo better. And then every once in a while it doesn't. And then you can tap it again and it goes away. And it's right. just like that with podcasts where you can say, turn on smart speed. And if you think this is better, this is an easier way to listen to the show. Keep it on. If not, turn it off. Exactly. And, and there are some shows where one or both of those options will actually make it sound worse. And that's why there's buttons for those instead of just being on all the time. <laughs> but I, I found in the majority of shows I listen to, um, the combination of both of them usually make it sound better. What was the deal? I remember this. There was a really interesting thread on the beta glassboard about the names of those features. And early on, I hope I'm not talking no, no, uh, behind the scenes, but the voice, voice boost had a different name, right? I think it just said yeah. boost. Early on, voice boost was not on or off. There were f uh, there were three modes to it. Uh, there was right. um, or four modes. There was off, where it didn't process anything. There was enhance, and then boost, and then also reduce. And yeah. reduce was was a mode that would actually cut off the spectrum on the extreme highs and extreme lows. So it would like if somebody sometimes you have a podcast where it's like way too much bass. 
and if you play it like in a bathroom or something like it it sounds really echoey and horrible and it's it's hard to listen to um some of them also will leave in like very very high-pitched whines as an artifact of some part of their processing and i i never quite figured out what causes that but some podcasts will have that occasionally and this has been true for years way before overcast um and so reduce mode would cut those ends off and then enhance and boost both did the same thing just boost did it more severely uh boost was like a, a larger boost basically um and so i had this this slider reduce off enhance boost and that was true for about half of the beta really yeah and, i was always confused as hell by the whole thing i yeah. i, I, I kind of just wanted i really just wanted uh, marco just make it sound better for me right and I, I think that and was that was feedback. that was a common request actually and and what i what i eventually found what i realized is that even myself i was just leaving everything on boost all the time yeah. like I, I wasn't using any of the other settings i thought i would when i made them and then it turns out i was not using them at all yeah and so that's when I re- redesigned that screen to just be just a button. Is this on or off? Yeah. And it sounds like it's also a real interesting difference between where you listen to podcasts. And it's like, it seems like this feature, the voice boost in particular, really comes in handy to people who listen in their car. Yes, um, definitely. That's, I mean, that's why I made it because I listen all the time in my car. I, 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 I got a new car a couple of years ago and it came with a serious radio and probably like, you know, a six month trial subscription. I never activated it. I've, I'm only listening to podcasts now. I, I used to listen to s- satellite radio. Before that, I, I would listen to like right. MP3s and CDs and everything. Now in my car, I'm always listening to either either nothing, like if I'm talking to Tiff, or if I'm riding alone, usually it's always podcasts. That's it. Yeah. And yeah, voice boost makes a massive difference in the car. Right. Because it's a noisy environment. And you, Yeah, it's a noisy environment. So the baseline for where you need the quietest voice on the show to be uh, audible is potentially dangerously high for like a burst of laughter or uh, somebody else who's who was recorded at a higher level right you know if you have somebody who's very you know polite and soft-spoken like brent you know i yeah. i, I used his, his old show as an example the um what was that show called with the calendar guy oh the, the, the simmons the simmons yeah. brothers or i don't whatever. know cousins yeah <laughs> um yeah i use that show as one of the oh that's files. good because michael simmons is <laughs> so right. loud he was like a loud boisterous voice and brent would was soft-spoken yeah and, that's a and they didn't example. level it very well at first because they you know they were when they first started the show they were you know they weren't that experienced producing podcasts and they got better at it afterwards but i use i use the earlier episodes as a test for this feature because it was the perfect case where i wanted to hear what brent was saying without having my ears blown out when Michael would talk. And so it was, uh, it was exactly the, the situation where voice boost is necessary. So it, voice boost is a, it, it's a combination of an EQ and a compressor and the compressor. Um, and it looks at the files in a couple other ways, but for the most part, it's a compressor that that's that most of what you're hearing is the compressor. Um, and, uh, and, and that was exactly, exactly what it's for, which is make Brent loud enough so I can hear him in the car without blowing out my ears yeah. when anyone else talks. Yeah, and there's like an old record producer adage that, you know, you don't you don't optimize like a music album for high quality studio headphones. You optimize it for the actual way that people in real world are going to listen to this music, which might be, you know, 10 20 years ago, um, you know, a piece of crap portable radio. You want to make right. sure it sounds good on that because that's where, you know, that if it doesn't sound good on that, you're never going to have a hit song, no matter how good it sounds on your, you know, $1,000 studio headphones. Exactly. Yeah. Got to optimize for the real world. 
Yeah, and that's true. It's true. Web design, app design, it's true of everything. Yeah. Um, one more question I had. I'm surprised Brent didn't ask. Uh, is I was fe- is feed parsing a nightmare for podcasts? Is it just it's like not RSS? as bad as RSS because f- you know, first of all, podcasts are just simpler than the entirety of RSS feeds because you know the entirety of RSS feeds. First of all, it includes Adam and four different versions of RSS and and the the use cases for RSS feeds are very varied. Uh, there's all sorts of things. Like, it isn't just a site like Engadget posting news headlines. There's all sorts of things that publish RSS feeds that, that any feed parser has to handle. Podcasts have two things going for them. Not only are is the scope of what they cover much smaller than that, because for the most part, it's audio shows that are produced, you know, once a day, once a week, maybe the, the most extreme ones might, might be published once an hour if it's like a dump from a radio station. Uh, but there's, you know, not much more than that. And, you know, usually it's pretty, you know, pretty well formed for the most part. And the, and the second big thing is that for all of the medium's history, iTunes has been the dominant player. And historically, it, it, iTunes is less picky now. But before, in, in previous years, iTunes used to be very picky about what kind of feeds it would accept. If your feed was malformed at all, iTunes wouldn't take it. And so it kind of enforced a level of consistency and quality, even, even a format iTunes for the for the longest time only supported RSS. It didn't even support Atom, and it still doesn't support it that well. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like today it does support Atom, but not well. Because I looked into that when I had to take over the feed for this show, and yeah. um, my backend publishing stuff is all set up for Atom, um, or at least it would work better with Atom in theory. And the bottom line was, you could, but you don't want to. If you really want, you really want your podcast to be R- RSS. You exactly. Know, actual RSS, not RSS as a catch-all term that includes Adam, which is confusing. Right. And Adam, in I, I know this is like this is like a holy war of two thousand three. Yeah. But uh, I really don't like Adam as a format. Um, you know, RSS was clearly designed to be pragmatic, and Adam was designed to be the standard that ends all standards and can, re- and can reproduce anything. Yeah. And it you shows, know, you yeah. know, it, it shows in the complexity of these two formats. And, and Adam has a lot of uh, ambiguity in like, okay, well, there are 17 different ways to represent the date and you have, you need to support all of these because some people might use this one. And then what the heck is an author? Does everything have an author? How, what, how is this author relevant to this other author? And there's like everything in Adam is, well, it depends, you know, and there's like 17 different ways to do it. And in RSS, you know, it isn't a perfect format. There are there are some ambiguities built in the, into the format that are kind of annoying, like the lack of required GUIDs, for instance. But for the most part, RSS, you know, as its name states, uh, is way simpler, and to just just to deal with, to publish and to consume, it is so much simpler because the format just can't represent all the little tiny nuances that Adam can, and Adam sees that as a flaw. I see that as a feature. Yeah, I totally agree. In hindsight, and you know, who knows? Maybe someday I'll just change everything at Daring Fireball to go RSS instead of Adam. But for some reason, I picked the wrong side back then, and I somehow convinced myself that I, I don't know. I think I kind of bought into the um, um the 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 well, that does sound good arguments behind the Adam people. I mean, I never got involved in it and wasn't really active, but. You know, like reading Mark Pilgrim's blog back then and a couple other people who were involved, it, it all made a lot of sense to me. And there were certain aspects of it 
that if you if you rendered a very simple feed in Atom, it looked better to me than RSS and still does in a way. Like I'm not thinking about it from the perspective of someone writing a parser and you have to handle everything. I was thinking of it in terms of what would make my the Daring Fireball feed look better if you just looked at it. And I still think Adam is better in that regard. But that's a stupid thing to make the judgment on. I think <laughs> I think the smarter way to look at it is just to say RSS is super pragmatic and it is designed from the get-go for doing exactly and only what I was doing, which was right. here's as a bunch of articles. To, yeah. Right, as opposed to like here we have to we have to design an overarching standard that will encompass every possible thing everyone will ever want to do again. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's all and, and Adam was also, you know, a lot more strict with certain things and it's yeah. it's almost like there's almost a parallel between uh, XHTML being yep. Atom, yeah, and like I think HTML5 so. or even old HTML being RSS, yeah, uh, where it's just like you know they, it was more structured, more defined, but way more complex, yeah, and it sounded good in in theory, but then in practice it just doesn't really work that well, and it's it's actually more complicated to deal with in practice. Yeah, and the RSS thing went by really quickly in just a handful of years, whereas the HTML thing played out over almost twenty years. But I think it, it is pretty. I think that's a pretty decent high-level analogy. And in in that analogy, I think RSS 2.0 is HTML5, which is, yeah, 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 the, yeah. Early, the RSS. And it had weird numbers. It was like 0. 0.9 and 0. 0.91 and 0. 0.92. And the weird thing was that, like, 0. 0.91 was from Netscape, and Dave Weiner had nothing to do with it, and 0. 0.92 went back to Dave <laughs> Weiner and ignored everything that was in 0. 0.91. It was really a sequel to 0. 0.90. I know I'm getting these version numbers wrong, but it you doesn't matter. For this. <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter that I'm getting the exact version numbers wrong. It's it's yeah. And Brent was at, literally at ground zero for all of that because yeah. he was like writing the, all the parsers and generators for all of these things. Uh, yeah. And and to be clear, when I'm talking about RSS, I'm talking about RSS too. The, yeah. the earlier ones, yeah, like the RDF based ones, that yeah. was a disaster. But we went. But th that was the battle. Though, right? That was, you know, and that's like with a X, XHTML never really was pitted against HTML4. It was really pitted against, a, you know, HTML5. I mean, even though the time, yeah. you know, they weren't at the same time, effectively, it was, well, the world's going to move off HTML4 eventually. And, you know, the standards people, you know, really thought it was uh, um, going to be XHTML because, my God, it's going to be great. It'll enforce that all of your web pages are XML compliant because if it's not, it won't render. Right. Yeah. <laughs> everything, like... everything was like structure. <laughs> And this is a battle that, you know, computing has gone back and forth on this in cycles for decades. Right. It, it was a battle for, like, structure and definitions and schemas and well-defined everything and extremely unforgiving implementations versus, you know, forgiving, flexible, just kind of, you know, spew something out and we'll try to figure out what it is. And it, the same the same thing is happening now with, like, Objective-C versus Swift even. I mean, it, like, it's this, the, we keep having the same battle over and over again where... You know, somebody will want, you know, there will be some kind of, uh, you know, class of problems that academic uh, people will try to, will think needs to be solved. And the way to solve it is to require standards. So everything can be strictly typed and, and you know, we can validate everything and everything has to be defined in a file. And we're going to write everything in Java with 10, with 10 class deep hierarchies of every model. This isn't this isn't just a person. We need to have a person factory constructor to construct the factory that builds people. And like all this, like there's levels and levels of complexity and structure um, to combat the free form wild west of dirty data, you know, and then the, the dirty data people come in and do everything faster and everything just works anyway. And then, and then the cycle repeats again. It's, ugh. 
I'm, I'm, I think we're going to always see this cycle just go back and forth. I don't even know. I was not going to get into this, and this could be, this could absolutely <laughs> sink the entire. Um, um, you might as well now. I mean, what? have you seen this thing where there's this group that wants to turn Markdown into an IETF standard? No, it, let me guess, Jeff Atwood. I I don't even know. I, you know what? It it <laughs> broke last weekend. I was out of town with with Amy and. I wasn't paying attention, and I've been busy this week on other stuff. I haven't even paid attention to it, but I, I don't know if it's—I don't know if it's associated with Atwood's crusade or not. Um, and there's talk from some people, and the funny thing is, they're doing it on a mailing list that I still host, and I haven't participated <laughs> on in in years. And I don't know why I haven't pulled the plug on the damn mailing list, but I still host the Markdown Discuss mailing list. And there's people saying that they should just take the name Markdown from me. Um, because I've been such a lousy steward of it, of it, at whatever. Meanwhile, you know, there's the, the the web pages on my site for Markdown with the, describing the syntax and everything uh, are more popular every single day. <laughs> it's more popular. <laughs> the Markdown. I could actually. I've thought about selling a sponsorship just for Markdown alone because it's more popular. The Markdown pages on Daring Fireball get more traffic than Daring Fireball did as a whole when I went professional with Daring Fireball. Um, <laughs> And you could even you could get like you know web development kind of advertisements for that too. Like it's a different market, right? That's what I've, that's exactly why I've thought that you I could, could have do a it. Job though. board just right. on that page. Um, although I do actually think a lot of the traffic is not coming from web developers; it's coming from people who are using a new a site that has switched to Markdown as the format. Um, you know, for oh, their sense, comments yeah. or whatever. But anyway, long story. I mean, I could go on forever about this. But to me, Markdown's not successful despite not being a standard uh, and 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 et cetera, et cetera, and all that would entail. But it, because of that, now it's possible that it would be better off if there were some kind of spec that could, you know, if there were a spec that implementers could implement for some things. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll do, I, there's, I don't want to get too deep in this, but there's some ideas and some work that some people have done that's really interesting in that regard, because 99.999% of people wouldn't have to worry about it, and it wouldn't change things. Um, but some of the things that people see as a problem, like the fact that different markdown implementations are slightly different, is not a problem. It's actually, you know, that's actually a good thing, because then GitHub which has, to my opinion, a great flavor of Markdown. They even call it, and they have a great name for it, perfect name. It's called GitHub Flavored Markdown, and it is exactly suited for GitHub users. And it does code a little differently because, uh, no shit, GitHub users are writing a lot of, you know, code blocks. Right. Um, and it would not, and almost none of their changes would make sense for Markdown everywhere. So, you know, it's great. I don't know. People see the world as broken regarding Markdown because there's not one true Markdown. Uh, and meanwhile, in the real world, everybody's happy writing Markdown. Yeah, I it, I think you're right. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it's a problem that needs to really be solved. Um, exactly. And you know, it's I think I think there's this temp, there's a a tendency for programmers to want to clean up standards and 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 formalize things like that. And in many cases, that is warranted. Um, but I, I think saying that everything has to be a standard is like saying open always wins. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, that, that is true sometimes, uh, but it is not a generalization that holds all the time. Um, and 
I don't know. I mean, maybe there are things that should be standardized, but it seems like Markdown has gotten along just fine without that, and it's moving along fine. And you're right that you know different implementations will have different needs, right. and it is it is not wise to try to cram all these specialty needs into one standard that everybody must follow, and then and then everything gets versioned, and you have to be like, oh well, does this support Markdown 2.0 yeah. or not? And it's it's kind of a mess. I don't know. It, it's a hard problem to solve, yeah. but. I wouldn't assume that a standards body is necessarily the right solution to this problem. I would almost certainly say it is, it is absolutely not. Well, of course you would say that because they're basically trying to fire you. Right. <laughs> but I don't know. It, I, I think that the success of Markdown, despite not having a standards body behind it all this time, uh, is the biggest evidence why it probably doesn't need one. Right. Exactly. And, you know, part of what it lets it get by without a spec and, you know, and I, I you know, like, um, it would be better in some ways. There are, there's things that could be clarified and there's things that make Markdown very hard, for example, to write a syntax coloring um, description for because of ambiguities. There's things, the, the assum- general assumption with Markdown, the thing that, that the reason why it doesn't have a spec and why I think it probably shouldn't is the general assumption is that whoever is writing it knows what they're doing and isn't going to put input random gibberish. And there's all sorts of the problems that people are talking about is, well, what if you put seven asterisks in a row? What does that generate? Well, don't do that. That's my answer. I don't know what it generates. Does it generate a bunch of empty M tags or strong tags? I I don't know. It just seems like, don't, just why would you do that? <laughs> you know, check what it looks like before you publish it. And if you see, oh, I forgot that if I put a bunch of asterisks there, that means something in Markdown. I should uh, backslash escape them. Just you know, take a look at it. It could be better. I'm not trying to brush aside all criticism of it and say that there's nothing I could do better. There's I, maybe I should wade, take a couple of weeks and wade back in and clean up some things. But I think what Markdown needs from me would be like a version. I don't even know what the official version, but like a, if it's at 1.01, I should do like a 1.02. <laughs> right. Or yeah. at most, like a 1.1. Yeah, maybe a 1.1. There's no need for a Markdown 2.0. And there's no need for a standard or a spec. But people get really worked up about it. What if they just make their own thing and give it another name and see if it catches on? Exactly. That's I've said that. To, that's like I, I probably should set up a text expander snippet for that one. <laughs> make up your own thing and see if it catches on. Yeah, because it might. And then then fine, problem solved. Then you have your own thing that you control. It has, it has a different name and fine, you got it. All right. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. It's it's either going to peter out or it's going to be a thing that I'm going to have to take a little more public and then, you know, and be like, uh, no, you cannot take the name Markdown. And I, I do have a nice soapbox for that. And I have a lot of people who are probably going to be on my side of this. And then everybody's going to be like, oh, my God, I remember him talking to Marco about that on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. You can even trademark it, maybe. Yeah, well. It probably know. isn't worth it. I mean, you uh, know. I don't know. I probably should try. I, I don't know. It's probably it probably is not worth it. Honestly, it might be but. harder because it's a general. It's a it, you know getting a regular word, even though the pun involved in the name, I think is I still think is rather clever. But uh, I don't know. It might be hard because it's a dictionary word. I, I am not a trademark lawyer. Right. However, I filed for a number of trademarks now, so I'm familiar with the process. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand, um, 
you know, you you could almost definitely trademark it. It yeah. doesn't matter that you haven't yet. It doesn't matter that it's out there. You know, the fact is, it's still your thing, your project. Yeah, it, I'm not asking not, for the word. It has word. not become a generic term that describes all things like this. Um, it is still a specific thing that that you made, hmm. and you could just make the because you know, like when you this is a very common thing I hear people talking incorrectly about on podcasts all the time. Um, they assume that a trademark is is like a universally unique name, right? Uh, when in fact, when you file for a trademark, you have to f- you have to file for it in certain relatively narrow categories. And the more broadly you want that trademark to apply, the harder it is to get. And sometimes it is, is it possible to get it more broadly. Um, there might be someone else that's too close to you. So like, so you know, like you like I have to file for Overcast's trademark within like the parameters of a website. That does that that you know lets people search and find and play podcasts and also a mobile application that lets people search and find and play podcasts and audio files and you know you have to you have to be that specific and 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 you know the, and the more the more generic and overcast is a word it's an English dictionary word but I still have a trademark pending on it that looks like it's going to go through just fine um, and there are other trademarks for the word that are in different industries and that's fine too and, and so yeah I, the, trademarks are are limited to a certain scope and if you make that scope narrow enough you can trademark almost anything yeah it's not like getting the twitter account name that's impossible yeah <laughs> well I, every you, time it comes up where someone's like oh yeah I, how do i i want to recover this abandoned name on twitter oh. every time this comes up there's like three people who are like oh i know a guy i, I, I can get that done <laughs> or, or oh yeah you, you could just email this person and every time if anyone else does it they can't do it anymore the process has now changed it is now more yeah. strict you, no sorry can't do it yeah, I think there might have been some loosey goosey early days where you could get a, a, you know, like in 2009, you could still get a, a claimed but vacant Twitter name. But it's, it's, I don't know. I think for obvious reasons that it's gotten harder. I have at Markdown. I don't think I've ever even posted from it, but I do have that. Do you know this? I think I talked about this on the show, but it was years ago. Um, do you know who wanted to buy it from me? Uh, Matt Mullenweg? Nope. Glenn Beck. What? <laughs> talk show, right wing talk show personality, <laughs> Glenn Beck. Does he have like a show with that name or something? Yeah, he started, he got involved in some kind of um, <laughs> um, oh, like an overstock.com uh, competitor. Or oh, something okay, like so that. it's like price markdowns. Uh, yeah, or maybe it was like Groupon <laughs> or something. I, I went and looked at it and tried to figure out what the hell it was, and I was just like, no. So I, and I just I got emails from them that they wanted to make a very serious offer about the Twitter account, and I just never answered them. That that is that is really truly something. I just couldn't live with myself. I didn't want to hear the number because <laughs> I don't think it would have been that big anyway. I really don't. Yeah, I, don't I doubt think, it. I don't think it would have been an offer that I couldn't refuse. But I was afraid that it would be an offer I couldn't refuse. So I Although, on the other it. hand, it would be nice to take a whole lot of Glenn Beck's money. Oh, I don't know. There's something about that. It, there's a, <laughs> yeah, I thought of that, too, that wouldn't it be nice to you know buy a new car with Glenn Beck's money? But then, I don't know. There's something about taking his money that... Uh, I don't know. But anyway, he wanted to buy it. But I think his whole thing fell apart anyway. Now his markdown is, is not even remembered. I don't think anybody remembered it. Does anyone remember him? <laughs> I don't know because he's not on TV anymore. I still he <laughs> pops up on the politics sites I read every once in a while. You can actually you actually read politics. I can I like politics make me so angry. Like every 
every political news thing I've ever read has just made me angry. So I, I just try to avoid it as much as I, I can. I used to be really into it when I did another enormous digression, but circa 2002 when I thought, you know what, I've got to start a blog. And it was – maybe it wasn't quite 50-50. And I know in hindsight everybody's going to say, come on, it couldn't have been. But I, it felt closer to 50-50 to me whether I would write about tech and et cetera or politics and et cetera. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll start the the Daring Fireball one first, which I always knew was going to be would be the name of this one. Uh, and I thought maybe I'll start a second blog. I even have a name for it, but I won't. I can't say what it is. Um, where I would write about politics, but it it's just to me, it's not that it makes me angry anymore. It just bores me. It bores me to death. Yeah, because it's the same story all the time. You know, it's, yeah. everyone's getting screwed. These people are, you know being bribed or being bought by lobbyists and you know the common people are getting screwed even further and everything just sucks and there's no hope in sight like that's basically it <laughs> like if you if you boil it down that's basically what every political story is and it's yeah, just I, awful i think if i had been alive uh, if my you know been born a few decades earlier and had been like a same t- like a columnist type writer in the 70s or 80s i think it would have been about politics because i think it was so much more interesting then and I know there's a lot of a lot of the, some of the problems are exactly the same in the partisanship and stuff, but um, it wasn't the money wasn't as as corrosive. It wasn't so much that it was really all just about business. You know, it was it was more. You know, the partisanship was actually interesting and kind of fun to write about. I just think it's funny also that you know you and I have a similar problem. You have it to a larger scale uh, because your audience is much larger than mine. Uh, we have a similar problem in that. We say things that are opinionated about topics that shouldn't be emotionally charged, but for many people they are. And we get a lot of crap from people who are like unreasonably, surprisingly angry about some statement we make about like a phone. (laughs) I can't even imagine what it would take in your mind to think that it would be a good idea to enter political writing as an additional thing that you did from that point of view. Yeah, and when I've dabbled in it on Daring Fireball, it's you know I I don't mind the criticism, but it was enormous. It, it was it peaked in two thousand eight with the Sarah Palin thing because I couldn't I couldn't not <laughs> hold my tongue. I was so clear that the woman was you know uh, borderline mentally disabled. I mean you know I, real a real real problem, and she was yeah, that was know, a scary time, <laughs> right? When it, when it appeared that like. There was a very good chance. Like most people today who weren't voting or paying attention in 2008 don't realize that like there was a very good chance Sarah Palin was going to be president. Right. Because, you know, McCain, yeah, McCain's still around now, but at the time everyone's looking at McCain saying he's not in great health. He's pretty old. He was like one of the oldest people to run for president. In well, and there was a tremendous and I think well-grounded fear that the polling numbers might be severely off because there were an awful lot of people who w- wouldn't want to tell a pollster that they wouldn't vote for the black guy, but right. when they go in, in the privacy of the voting booth, would. Right. And, it was and so cer- it, there was a very real chance that McCain and Palin were going to win. And and that and because of McCain's age and health, there was a good chance he might not make it for a full eight years, right. and that she might become president. Like and, th- th- these were really like non-trivial possibilities. Right. And when I'd write about her, man, people would just uh, a certain subset of people would just go nuts. And it was funny because some of them were clearly themselves very low IQ, but others were not. Others were you know, but that you know, they're because that's their 
side and and they'd say you know if if she was a democrat you'd love her it's like no if she was if i'm not that partisan it's like <laughs> my politics are certainly not conservative but i'm not um you know if 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 a true moron ran on a democratic ticket i would do the same thing like it's way more dangerous way more dangerous i i prefer to have a democrat in the white house than a republican i do but I would much rather have any Republican of reasonable intelligence than a moron who's a Democrat. I yeah, think that's yeah, terrifying. I mean, like, you know, because when, when the Democrats sell out the public, they at least try to do it quietly and, and in subtle, in more subtle ways that are, that are less likely to be traced back to them. The Republicans have, have learned that they can sell out the public in public. Like, you know, brashly, they, they, can, they can just, they can do things that seem ridiculous to to thinking people um but they can get away with it because <laughs> no one cares it like they just the the public does not give a crap and so they just they can they can do whatever they, you know at least at least the democrats give us the illusion that they are like, that they have us in mind which of course they don't but at least they give us that illusion and here's marco ex- <laughs> proving in the email I'll get in the coming seven days, exactly why I made the right choice in two thousand two. Totally. No, and I, I think I think it's best for <laughs> for you and I to keep doing what we already do with this issue, which is like for truly important issues, blog about them on our tech right. blogs. Um, because if you know if we if either of us had a political blog, the only people who would read it would be people who agree with us. Yeah, that's true. Basically, or and there be there be occasional drive by trolls who wanted to yell at us, but that doesn't really do anything. Um, and so I I think I think you could make more of a difference for a cause you care about by not usually being political and choosing occasional times where it's worth it to be, and then you kind of trick some people who don't agree with you into seeing that opinion. Yeah, here's the thing I keep thinking about I, when I look back at it. I think that it, I wish that our system were set up in a way that it would be a lot easier for whoever won the last election to get whatever shit done that they want. And and if it turns out to be unpopular, they're going to get voted out, and whoever comes in next can undo it. I think there should be a lot more um, of that. Whereas we've got a system now where it's like nothing happens, right? Like one one major. I, I know I'm exaggerating to some extent but really only one major thing has happened since obama was elected president which is the health care reform right and, look, and look at how well that like everyone keeps trying to repeal that right. somehow it's, but which it's, is comical it, you know but when that's one thing right and yeah you, and it's I a big know, thing but still like that's yeah, somebody's gonna say you know it's because you know that people are gonna email me and say it's because obama is a terrible president and a bad leader blah 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 but it's not it's because it's so the system is set up in a way that nobody can get anything done bush didn't get much done other than start the wars in terms of major accomplishments because it was like this thing that both sides could somehow for a few brief years it was like everybody felt like we had to get behind them um uh, I'm not saying I was behind it, but I'm just saying that like Democrats who were in the Senate and House also voted for it. It was something that, but other than that, not much. You know, nobody passes anything. I think it would be so much better. And I say this knowing that in my lifetime there will be Republican presidents and Republicans control of the House and Senate, and all those things ebb and flow. I'd rather see even the Republicans get to get more of their stuff done while they're winning, and vice versa than the current system, which seems to be set up basically around the idea of let's try to make sure nobody can do anything. 
Yeah, it, it seems like there there are some like security holes in in the procedures uh, in Congress where like you know it's very easy for for a party to block everything ever, even when they're not really in power, like like the whole filibuster thing and certain majority rules. Like there are certain things where like it's just it seems like when these rules were con- were considered or made or implemented, it was not really a, it was not really a thought put into it that what if one party or the other just decides to block everything for a decade, like just says no to everything the party ever does for a decade and no one ever compromises on anything. Like I think that thought never crossed anyone's mind before because it, it never really happened before. Yeah. Uh, And now that now we're, we're being shown, Oh, this is kind of a problem because we can't get anything done. Even things that are fairly moderate, like we can't even get moderate things passed. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, it could use some rethought of like some, some, some uh, rule changes in Congress just just to just to make it so that it's possible to get something through, you know, for for whoever has an a, a, the the technical majority. Yeah, and I think in terms of looking at a career as a you know podcasting host and a columnist on a blog, you know that, that's what I mean when I say it, to me it's just, it would be it would be too boring. I think I you know I might have burned out on it not because I would have worked harder at it or that it would have been more stressful, it, I think I would have burned out from boredom, you know, like, I think what makes what we talk about in general, interesting is how quickly things can change, you know, I mean, just look at the phones alone, that we've gone from a world, you know, where the iPhone didn't exist seven years ago, or I guess it had just come out a couple weeks ago, seven years ago, to a world where IBM and Apple are selling iPhones together to corporate customers. It's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. All right, let me thank our second sponsor. It's our good friends at uh, lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. Lynda.com is a great site, helps you learn and keep up to date with all of your software, uh, pick up new skills, explore new hobbies with their easy-to-follow, very professional video tutorials. And they cover everything you can imagine, anything you think that a site like this could or should have as a video tutorial. They've got it. How to become a better photographer, you know, how to use cameras, how to learn a new programming language like Objective C. Um, I don't know if they have a Swift one up yet. Do you know? Maybe they um, do. I haven't looked yet. I'm not sure. I'll, well, if they don't have it now, I know that they're going to have it soon because they work fast. I remember last year they had yeah. iOS 7 stuff really fast. Uh, 2,400 courses all of them taught by industry experts, with more of them added weekly. Courses for all experience levels, beginner or advanced. And you get all of this for one low monthly price of 25 bucks. Unlimited access to the whole lynda.com library. Great. That's, you know, 25 bucks a month is nothing. But what it means is... Uh, you don't have to sit there and worry, hey, I don't know if I want to spend three bucks on this one. I don't know if I want to spend another three bucks. You're already in. You've got your $25 a month subscription. You're not sure if a course is right for you. Just start playing it because you're in and you can see. Um, just anything you can imagine. Here's one of the things they've called out for me is that for Final Cut Pro users, you can check out their most recent, uh, the new features in Final Cut Pro X, uh, uh, and learn how to create polished, effects-driven commercial video of your own. Amazing stuff. Um, here's the best thing, though. The best thing, though, is that they have a seven-day free trial for listeners of the show. Go to lynda.com slash the talk show. lynda.com with a Y 
slash the talk show, and you get a seven-day free trial. So you don't have to cough up any money up front. Just anything that might interest you, go there, use that URL. Seven days, watch a whole bunch of video, and at the end of it, uh, I guarantee you, you'll be in. You'll sign up. Uh, so just go there, lynda.com slash the talk show and check it out for yourself. Great sponsor. Um, speaking of commercials, you know who, what I saw the other day blew me away. I'm in a bar with Amy having a drink and on, on the TV behind the bar, it's showing ESPN and, uh, you know, I see a TV, I'm going to pay attention to it. And all of a sudden Adam Lisa Gore is on TV. Oh yeah. For what? Uh, that there's a commercial that he shot a sandwich video for a company called true car T R U E C A R. It's the future of car buying. I actually, I haven't watched the whole thing. I was in a bar. I couldn't hear it. All I did was see him. Uh, now his videos have gone on real TV, like national TV. That's gotta be like, that, that's definitely a strange thing to see. Like your friend all of a sudden appear on TV. That, I went nuts. I think I'm usually <laughs> a pretty, you know, I, I was like that. I know that guy. That's my, he's been on my show. Right. That's my guy. And there he is up there. It's, and it's just a classic sandwich video there. He, and he's the spokesman. He's, he's in it. He's all, you know, that's awesome. I'm so, uh, I am so happy for him for everything he's like. I remember back when he was, you know, before he started sandwich video, he was just doing like video work for people, and he didn't seem like he was that happy doing it. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it seemed like he was he was not incredibly happy with his previous jobs, and he uh, he did this thing on his own, and it's just exploded. He is because like now everyone sees how cool he is like how, right. his his style how how talented he is and, and how good his work is and and his unique like style and voice that he puts into these things that are so appealing to so many people like it's so great to see your friends have that kind of success and, it, and he's like the nicest guy in the world you know it, it couldn't happen to a better guy no and he's such a thrill but it's so it's so because too it's like uh, who would have thought that the, that he you know he just doesn't look like what you think of as a celebrity pitchman, right? right? He's and he's like deadpan and like right. so like muted, right? And and it works and it works really well. And we all we you know we all thought that you know like internet nerds because right. we would see his video his previous videos and love them, but yeah, I I think it's it's a surprise in a very good way that wow everyone else feels this way too. It's it's like like nerdy smart stuff like what we so often like around these parts is now popular everywhere. It was so funny. Like, I, I was making the directory in Overcast, and I had to, like, whip together a directory a few days ago, and and uh, Jason Snell suggested this category titled Pop Culture, and almost everything in it is about geek culture. And part of that's because Jason Snell's a geek like us, uh, but part of it's also because geek culture now is pop culture, and that was a very strange thing to realize. Right. Yeah, like the thing the other day where that turned out that uh, turns out the next Thor is a is a woman, and it was like I couldn't like it was on every site. It didn't matter whether it was a geek site or like a mainstream site. It was covered with equal, you know, uh, uh, excitement. And, you know, it it was a perfect example to me because I remember growing up. What happened in comic books would be like something that like only the other kids in fifth grade were talking about. <laughs> you couldn't turn on TV and find out about the new Spider-Man outfit. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, because they weren't making movies that made billions of dollars with it. <laughs> right. But it's just funny how it's crossed over. And I, But that's the thing, though, is that it's 
I think it's highly doubtful that that the you know all sorts of stuff that happens in the comic books doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen in the movies. You know, so it it's it's only in the comic books where there's going to be a where Thor is now a woman. Um, I mean, I guess it could eventually be turned into a movie. I don't know, but I love I that you that you've had me on here to talk about IBM TV yep. and comics. Comics. I'm know. like so incredibly unqualified. I don't, I don't read comic books. It's for babies. I just think it's inter- I just think it's an interesting example of what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's more like you know it's you know, a lot of people know you know one or two nerds who or maybe you are one of these nerds uh, who you were a nerd socially growing up. It did not serve you well, and then you got a job that paid you good money, and then all of a sudden people are interested in you. I feel yeah, like that has happened not... to the entire nerd industry, like the whole nerd, the whole like, geeky category of things. Like now, geeks are big business. You know, we ha- we control all the internet stuff. Our comic books and all that crap are now like billion dollar movie franchises and stuff like that. Like, I feel like the rest of the world now cares about us because we have all the money. I guess to a certain degree that describes me, but I think I was always a little bit, a little bit outside that, a little bit harder to to pinned down in that sort of, you know, like my high school years were not unhappy. I wasn't, I wouldn't, I would say the only thing that made me really unhappy is I just wanted to already live on my own. Not that I don't love my parents and they're not great, but I felt like I was, I was, I felt clearly able to make my own decisions about when to go to bed, you know, (laughs) like when I was around 11. (laughs) You have now reached the conclusion of side one of your official National Lampoon Stereo Test and Demonstration Record. And what better time for our special end-of-the-record test? First of all, this is a test of your equipment. No matter what brand or type of record player you have, the tone arm should now be close to the center of the record and almost at the shiny area just before the label. If you own an automatic turntable, in a few seconds, the arm should raise itself as if by magic and then return to its rest near the outside of the unit. If you do not have an automatic turntable, this should not happen. The second part of this test involves you. If you have been correctly installed as part of your stereo system, you will now lift the record up, turn it over, and replace it on the turntable with side two on the top. You will then proceed to listen to all of side two. If you do not do this, you have failed the test and you have the worst hi-fi system in the world no matter how much money you spent.